You can be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Father, we come before you now as we open your word and we seek your face in it. I ask that you would help me as I walk us through these verses here in chapter 5, these weighty verses that the preacher has for us to, to see and to understand. Help me to proclaim Christ in the midst of all of this. And I ask that you would be with those who are sitting there before me. May you give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word. May your people be built up by what is about to be spoken here. May it be pleasing to you. And may it all be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be going through chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. But before we start working through those verses, I want to do a quick recap of chapter 4, which is what we were looking at last week. So last week in our time together, we worked through the whole chapter, all of chapter 4. And as we worked through that chapter, the preacher showed us the reality of envy. And that our selfishness is what is behind it. The motivation of selfish gain and selfish profit is what fuels envy or otherwise known as jealousy. We were then shown that to live like that is to walk down the path of destruction. Because in living the selfish life, you not only hurt and oppress your neighbor, but you actually hate yourself in the process. Because to live that way, to live the selfish life, is to disobey God and to go against His good design for humanity. The solution then, as the preacher laid out, is to love your neighbor. And forsake your sinful desires. Because when you love your neighbor and you forsake those sinful desires, those selfish desires, you obey God and you live according to His good design for humanity. And you actually love yourself in the process. And this is where we saw the work of Christ come in. We saw that Jesus is the one who restores our relationship with God through His life, death, and resurrection, which then leads to a restored relationship with our neighbor. So all restoration must begin there. It must begin with our relationship with God. It must be restored first before we can ever love our neighbor how God intends for us to, which is in a God-exalting way. Because as we saw through the example of the poor wise king, the example that the preacher gave at the end of chapter 4, you can love your neighbor and do good things. You can put those wise things that the preacher laid out into practice. You can live the wise life. You can love your neighbor. And they might even love you back, like follow you and make you king. 
But if you only do these things because of what you gain under the sun, you will die and you will be forgotten, just like the poor wise king was forgotten. And your love in the end would be in vain because it was not motivated or fueled by a God-centeredness or a Christ-centeredness. So we love our neighbor as a direct reflection of our love for Christ, which is what true love looks like. Now we come to chapter 5. and I, You may have noticed last week in chapter 4 that there's this proverbial language going on. It was almost like you were reading through the book of Proverbs. You know, As you go throughout the book of Proverbs, uh, the same author, Solomon, who is the author of Ecclesiastes, says things like, it's better to do this than to live in that way. And that's what we saw last week. And so in the coming chapters, throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see more of that language, more of that proverbial language. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 5. This comparison of what foolishness looks like and then wisdom right on the other side. A comparison and contrast method going on there. So let's read verses 1-7 to in chapter 5. The preacher writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now before we go any further, before we begin walking through this passage, looking at these verses, there are two questions that we must answer. And they are, where is the house of God? And why should we guard our steps when we go there? Those are the two questions we need to answer, and that's what we're going to look at. So first, where is the house of God? Well, in the preacher's day, or in Solomon's day, who is the author, the the man who calls himself the preacher, in his day, the house of God was the temple that Solomon himself had built according to God's command, which we see in the book of 1 Kings. And it was called the house of God because that's where God's presence and His glory dwelt among His people. Not because God actually lived there like you and I live in our houses. God didn't actually live in the temple. That wasn't His literal house. You couldn't go into the temple and see God laying on His couch, per se. It wasn't like that. And Solomon knew that when he he built the temple. He knew that this wasn't going to be God's literal house. 
Because when we see Solomon pray at the dedication of this temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he says in his prayer that the highest heaven cannot contain God, much less this temple that I have built. So he realizes that God is much greater and cannot be contained by a man-made structure. And it was also the same in the day of Moses, in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, which was also constructed by God's command. First there was the tent of meeting, and then there was the temple that Solomon constructed. But neither one actually contained the glory of the Lord. We also see this in Isaiah chapter 6, that the whole earth is full of the Lord's glory. God's glory and presence is everywhere. You cannot escape it. But within the temple, God's presence and holiness was fuller, you could say, than anywhere else on earth. This is why when the people in Solomon's day went to worship God and to offer sacrifices, they went to the temple. They went to the house of God, which is what it was referred to in that day. That's where God's presence and His glory dwelt among His people. And, that, and this is why they were to guard their steps when they went there. The word guard meaning to watch yourself or to be careful. These people were to go to the temple of God with reverence in their hearts and with caution in their steps because they were going to stand before the presence of God in order to worship and to offer sacrifices. And God had made it very clear over the course of the Old Testament that you did not go to worship God in a light-hearted way. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Leviticus is in the Bible. That book that we often avoid because it's full of laws and sacrifices. That book is there to show you two things. That God is holy and that you are not. That's why all of the sacrificial system was put into place. That's why all of those offerings are made. Because you cannot come into the presence of God as you are. There must be atonement made. So it shows that God is holy and that you are not. Now what does this look like for us on the, the, New, Testament the New Testament side of things? in the New Testament era? Where do we go to worship God? Where is the, the house of God, as the preacher says? Well, we go to church, as we say. We go, to gather with, we go to gather together with the people of God, which is what the church is. You know, the church is not this, this building. It is the assembly of God's people. That is what the church is. And so it doesn't matter where we worship, it doesn't matter where we gather, because whether it be in someone's home, like most of the first century Christians did, or in a building like this, God's presence is in and among His people, which is what Jesus came and accomplished through His life. Because of Jesus and His accomplishments, his fulfilling of the law of God, you and I don't have to go to a specific building. We don't have to go to a specific temple of God. Because 
in the life of Christ, in His accomplishment, after He died, was resurrected from the grave, He sent His Spirit and filled His people with that very Spirit. And so when we gather together, the Spirit of God is within us, dwelling within us. So when we gather together, God's presence is in and among His people. And that's anywhere that they meet. In this building, or like I mentioned a moment ago, in a little mud hut, which is probably what it looked like in the first century when those Christians gathered together in a home. God's presence was in and among that little unimpressive building, you could say. Now in light of that, how do you often think about gathering together with God's people? How did you walk through those doors this morning knowing that you were coming to gather with God's people? Did you think about the fact that you were about to come and enter into the presence of God among His people? Now in light of that, the preacher lays out two ways that we can enter in to the presence of God and to worship Him. He shows us that we can either enter into this place, enter into the presence of God, like the foolish person. You can worship in a foolish way. Or you can enter in like the wise person. You can worship in a wise way, which is what true worship looks like. So let's look first at the worship of fools. Now look down again at the first part of verse 1. The first part of verse 1. They do not go in reverence. The foolish person does not enter into the presence of God or the house of God in reverence, which is the opposite of guarding your steps. That's where I'm getting that from. So the foolish person does not go to worship God in reverence. They do not guard their steps as the preacher says. Instead, they forget about how weighty it really is to worship God. So instead, they go in a flippant way. They do not take the worship of God seriously. They may worship half-heartedly. Or they may make worship about them and not God at all. Or they may gather with God's people because that's just what they do. They were raised that way. It's just a part of their routine. You come to Sunday services, you come and gather with God's people because I've been doing it since I was a child. But there's, real, there's no real heartfelt worship there. You just come in and you just go through the motions. There's no reverence. They have no real reverence for God whatsoever. Secondly, they do not go to listen. This is coming from the, first, the, the second part of verse 1 and verses 2 to 3. They do not go to listen. The foolish person does not go to listen to what God has to say to them in His Word. They do not go with their mouths shut and their ears open. Instead, they go with the attitude that God needs to hear something from them. They forget that God is in heaven, high above them in every way. Instead, they think of themselves as being big and God being small. Their words are many and their foolishness is great, the preacher says. And thirdly, they do not take obedience seriously. This is verses 4 to 7. 
the foolish person does not take obedience seriously. And the example that the preacher gives in these verses is of someone who makes a, a vow or a promise to God and does not do what they said that they would do. Now, making vows or promises before God, I realize, is something foreign to us today. We don't really think of making a vow to God, but this is something that was pretty common in the Old Testament. Whenever they went to the temple to worship and to offer sacrifices, people would often make a vow before the Lord. An example of this is Hannah, who was the, the mother of the prophet Samuel. If you guys remember... At one point, Hannah was barren. She could have no children. And she prayed to the Lord and asked the Lord to give her a child. And the Lord answered that prayer. He gave her a child. And the promise that Hannah made was that if the Lord gave her a child, she would offer that child to the Lord's service. And so, God gave her the child, which was Samuel, and she did. She fulfilled that vow. She offered Samuel to the Lord and he served him all of his days. So that's an example of a vow that was fulfilled, that was kept, a promise that was kept to God. But according to what the preacher says here, the person who tells God that they are going to do something, a person who makes this vow, who makes a promise to God, and then does not keep it, is disobeying God. They're not keeping their word. And this is very much like when we make a promise to one another, right? If I make a promise to you, if I make a vow to you, you expect me to do it. You expect me to keep my promise. Well, how much more so with God? How much more so if you make a promise to God and then do not fulfill it? Treat it in a light-hearted way. The preacher says that they are being disobedient and that they are taking the goodness of the Lord for granted. They're allowing their mouths to lead them into sin, as the preacher says in verse 6. And when the temple priest, referring to the messenger, that language that's used there, the temple priest, whenever he confronts them about their vow or the promise that they have made, when they come before them and ask, have you fulfilled your promise to the Lord? And they haven't. The excuse that I didn't mean it is not going to work. That's not going to get you off with God. The excuse that I did not mean to make that vow is not going to work. God is going to expect you to fulfill what you have said. He's going to expect you to keep your word. Now I want us to look at a couple examples, or a few examples rather, of what this foolish worship or this foolish, these foolish offerings look like throughout the Bible. The first example that I want to bring before you is the example of Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron. Whenever God in the Old Testament set up the, the Levitical priest, the, the priesthood, the, all of those laws, all of those sacrifices, He set up these priests. And Nadab and Abihu were some of those priests. And in Leviticus chapter 10, we're told that these two guys, they go before the Lord, and now they've been instructed how to do this. They've been instructed how they should be offering sacrifices. They, are, they have been instructed in how they should be going before the Lord in reverence. So they know 
how they are supposed to be going in obedience. But instead, they go before the Lord, and as the Bible says, they offer unauthorized fire before Him. And when they, when they offer that unauthorized fire, the Lord strikes them down right then and there. He kills them. He takes their life. God was showing that I am holy and that you must stand before me how I say that you should. The second example comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 25. This is the example of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was one of the kings of Judah after the, the nation of Israel had been split into two, Israel being in the north and Judah being in the south. King Uzziah was the king of Judah in that time period. And the Bible tells us that he started out as a good king. He was obedient and he served the Lord. But later on in his life, he became proud. And he entered into the temple and he tried to burn incense, which was not authorized for him to do. Only the priest could enter into the temple and burn incense. But he went in anyways, even after the priest told him, don't go in, don't go do that, you're disobeying. But he went in, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he was a leper until he died. Again, the Lord was showing that he is holy and that he must be obeyed. The third example comes from the New Testament, from Acts chapter 5. This is the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were a part of the, the early church gatherings. You guys remember when the first church started under the, the leadership of the apostles, there were many signs and wonders going on. And some of those signs and wonders were that the people were selling their possessions and they were selling their land so that they could give all of their money to the apostles. They would go and they would lay it at the apostles' feet so that they could distribute it among God's people how it was needed. Well, Ananias and Sapphira saw that. And they wanted to do the same. But they didn't want to give this offering for the glory of God. They wanted to give the offering so that they could be seen. So that they could be seen giving this great sacrifice. And so they too sold a piece of property but they lied about the price that they sold it for so that they could keep back some of the money. Well, Peter was aware of this and he confronted the both of them. And he said, you have indeed lied to God and not to man. And God struck them dead. Again, God was showing that He is holy and that He does not accept half-hearted worship. Now among those three examples, there is a common theme flowing through them. And it's the theme that the preacher mentions here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. None of these people that I just mentioned went into the presence of God with true reverence. They did not treat God with reverence. They did not listen. And they did not treat obedience seriously and they were punished for doing so now what does true worship or the true worship of the wise look like 
What does it look like to go to the house of God using the preacher's language in a wise way? What does true worship look like? Again, let's go back to the first part of verse 1. So the wise or true worshiper does guard their steps when they go into the presence of God to worship Him. They do not go into His presence in a flippant way. They understand that this God is holy, 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 and that they are not. They understand that God is in heaven, high above them in every way. They go and gather with God's people, understanding that God's presence is there among them. They go and worship in spirit and in truth, which is how the Lord Jesus Christ defined true worship. You worship in spirit and in truth. Secondly, they do go to listen. And again, this is coming from the second part of verse 1 down to verse 3. The wise or true worshiper understands that it is better to draw it is better to draw near to listen rather than acting as if God needs to hear something from them. They go with their hands on their mouths and they go with their ears open ready to listen from the word of God. They realize that it is God who is the one who speaks the words of eternal life and that their weak and feeble words have no comparison whatsoever. God does not need to hear from you. He does not need your intelligence. He does not need your lofty speech. We come to hear from God. We come to hear from His Word. The words of eternal life. And thirdly, they do take obedience seriously. From verses 4 to 7. The wise or true worshiper not only talks the talk of obedience, you could say, but they also walk the walk of obedience. They do not speak empty promises. In fact, they don't even have to make an oath because they have the trustworthy character that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5 in verses 33 to 37. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old that you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What Jesus describes there is a description of a person who takes obedience seriously. They are known to be a person who keeps their word. So all they have to say is yes or no, and that is enough. People know that they will keep their word. And God Himself knows that they will keep their word. He knows and sees their hearts, their character. He knows that when they go before His word, and when they read His word, and they see what they are called to do, 
He knows that they will simply do it. They don't have to go before Him and swear by all of these oaths. They don't have to swear by the temple of God using the Old Testament language. They simply see it and they do it. And the same for us. They make a promise to someone and they keep it. They take obedience seriously. Now what are some examples of true worship? The first example comes from the example of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now you may be thinking that, well, wasn't Saul a foolish king? Wasn't he an example of what a fool looks like? And that's true. Saul Saul was a foolish king. He displayed what disobedience to God looks like. But in the midst of his disobedience, we see true obedience. Now in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel... King Saul was given the command by the Lord to go and to destroy the Amalekites, a a people group in the time of the Old Testament. He was to go to them and he was to destroy everything that they had. He wasn't to leave anything there and he wasn't to bring anything back. He was to devote everything to destruction as the Lord commanded him. But he disobeyed. And he spared the king of the Amalekites. And he allowed the people to bring back some of the spoil. Sheep and oxen and other forms. But when Samuel confronted Saul about his disobedience, he acted as if he had obeyed. And listen to what he says to Samuel. Uh, Listen to what Samuel says to Saul. And you can turn with me if you like to 1 Samuel chapter 15 as I read through these verses. Beginning in verse 20. This is when Samuel approached Saul about his disobedience. And Saul says this. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. No, you didn't. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord had sent me. Yes, you did, but you did not fulfill it completely. He said, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. You were supposed to destroy him. You weren't supposed to bring him back, Saul. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil. You see what's going on here. There's this blame shifting going on. He says, the people did this. The people brought this back. Well, Saul, you're the king. You're supposed to give the command. So he shifts the blame. He says that the people took of the spoil. They brought back the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. So you see what's going on there. Saul was trying to make an excuse and say that, well, we were going to sacrifice these things to the Lord. But the Lord's not pleased with that. If your life is filled with disobedience, He doesn't care about your sacrifices. 
Because what He cares about is where your heart is at. What is the heart of that worship? What is the heart of that sacrifice? If Saul would have treated the Lord with true reverence, if he would have listened, if he would have treated obedience seriously, as the preacher says here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, then the Lord would not have rejected him. The final example comes from Psalm 50. Again, you can turn there if you'd like. Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7, this is the Lord Himself speaking to His people. He is speaking to His people and He is showing what He desires in worship. He's showing what He desires in sacrifice. And He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. Excuse me, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. Now listen to this, what he says in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. He would not tell you. Again, he does not need you. He does not need your worship. He does not need your sacrifices. He does not need your offerings. Because it all belongs to Him in the first place. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of goats? And then here, this is what He looks for. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So a heart full of thanksgiving and joy. That is the heart that God delights in. That is the the worship and the approach that He looks for. He looks for delight. He looks for joy in the heart of the worshiper. So yes, approach with reverence. Approach ready to listen. And approach taking obedience seriously. But most of all, let there be thanksgiving, joy, and delight welling up in your hearts for God and what He has done. Because when there is thanksgiving... When there is delight, when there is joy in your heart, the other three will follow. And that's why I wanted to show you Psalm 50 at the end. Because this is what colors all of worship. Because you can have reverence, you can have a listening ear, and you can have a spirit of obedience about you, but if there's not joy filling those things, then it's dry. 
And you're just going through the motions like we were talking about earlier. So we must have thanksgiving welling up in our hearts for our God. So how are we doing? Alt Chapel Bible Church. How are you doing? How do you enter into the gathering of God's people? Not only this morning, but Sunday after Sunday. How do you enter in to the assembly of God? Into the presence of God? Of God. Do we come to these gatherings? Do we come into the presence of God with reverence? Do we come ready to listen? Do we come ready to obey? And most of all, do we come with thanksgiving and joy in our hearts for God? Or do we look like the foolish worshipers that the preacher describes here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7? Do we look like the foolish worshiper who belittles God with their half-hearted worship? Now, I don't know how you answered that question within your own hearts, but hear this. The only way, the only way that you will ever be able to worship God truly and continue to do so throughout your life, is if you look to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then continue looking to the Gospel of Jesus over and over and over again. Because it's within the Gospel that we see ourselves for who we really are, which is sinful and wretched, deserving of wrath, deserving of God's judgment. But then also we see within the Gospel, Jesus the King of glory Himself, the perfect image of God in every way. We see Him leave the throne of heaven. We see Him pay for all our sin and all of our half-hearted worship. We see Him restore us to the place to where we can worship God rightly and fully. So when you look to that, when you look to the Gospel, when you see yourself as you really are, and then you see the work of Christ and all that He has done for you, that's what fills your heart with joy. That's what enables you to walk into the assembly of God with thanksgiving in your heart, with joy for God's Word and for God Himself and for the people of God. So come in reverence. Come ready to listen. Come ready to obey. And most of all, come with thanksgiving in your hearts for the work of Christ and all that He has done for you. Have thanksgiving in your heart welling up for the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we thank You for the power of the Gospel that enables us to come before You in in true worship with hearts filled with joy. Thanks be to You 
and to the work of Christ. Because in Him we are able to, to come and not be like these, these foolish worshipers that the preacher lays out in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We are able to come and to delight in Your Word. We are able to come with true reverence. We come with ears ready to listen to Your Word. And we come understanding the weight of obedience. Father, again, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is anyone here this morning that does not have this true reverence, does not care to listen to Your Word, or does not treat obedience seriously, someone who does not have joy in their heart, then I pray that You would convict them with Your Word. The Word that we just spent the last few moments looking at. May You show them the Gospel. May You show them that Christ died for them. He came so that they would be able to be restored in Your presence. That they could enter in once again the courts of of heaven, the, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. We thank You for you for who You are and for Your steadfast love. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.